word for us this morning as we begin to study Scripture together. And we're going to be in 1 Peter chapter 2. If you want to be finding that in your Bibles, it will also be up here on the screens. Uh, I just need to let you know ahead of time, I'm really excited about preaching 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 through 10, which we're going to be today. I appreciate Chris and the worship team for preparing our hearts uh, to think about these words that Peter writes to us. Uh, I want to just mention a couple of things in the uh, theme of prayer uh, that <clears throat> didn't make it into the bulletin that we want you to be praying about uh, and that have been sent in uh, through the prayer text number. Uh, Maxine Stroud was uh, diagnosed with COVID, and so uh, Harold and Maxine are asking you to pray for her. Uh, so be mindful of that this week. Also, Wayne Ledoux has uh, asked us to pray for Alicia. Neither one of Oh, Wayne is here. I see Wayne this morning, but uh, Alicia's struggling with some health stuff and having a difficult time walking, and uh, and so I want you to be praying for Alicia as well this week. Uh, and I want to thank you for participating in our, our prayer time. Again, our, our hope with that, we'll get more comfortable with it as we do it over the next several months, but our hope is that having some dedicated prayer time to pray for one another will really continue to kind of expand our definition and how we think about what it looks like to bear one another's burdens, right? That's really what we're doing. When we ask someone to pray for us, we're asking them to help carry a load that we are carrying. Uh, and so, and, it, and it's also sort of a practice of sharing and confession. And, and really, I've, I've said this before, so often we think about confession as something much different than what I think it actually is when Scripture talks about it. Really, confession is just sharing something that is on your heart, asking someone else and inviting someone else into some space in your life and sometimes we need to say things out loud to another brother or sister in Christ so that it can be prayed over. So thank you for participating in that time. Uh, I want to I want to start our time before we look at 1 Peter chapter 2 verses 4 through 10 with another prayer. If you would bow with me this morning again. Father, we're again mindful and thankful for this space. Uh, grateful that you're here with us. Uh, grateful for a time of prayer and worship and surrounding one another. Pray, grateful for the opportunity to be at the table together and remember the body and the blood of Christ that washes us clean, <clears throat> that allows us to be able to, to stand faultless before your throne, to be dressed in righteousness. And we just uh, proclaim again this morning in agreement with what we've just been singing about that, uh, that there is no other name other than Jesus Christ. And we are thankful for Christ, for his life, for his death, for his resurrection, for who we are as a result of those things. And we pray today as we think about our identity, we think about uh, who we are because of Jesus, that you'll uh, give us eyes to see, and you'll give us ears to hear, and you'll give us hearts to receive all that you want us to see and hear and receive, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. So recently, some of you received a text message from someone that was posing as me. And it said, this one actually came from Leanna Baldwin. She was one of the people who alerted me that this, this, this came to her. It said, hello, Leanna. I sincerely hope every one of you and your families stay safe and healthy at this very difficult time. The situation is getting more crazy every day. Let me know if you are available to take care of an errand for me, Pastor Doug Page, which probably alerted Leanna since I never refer to myself that way. This is not Doug, plus she has my phone number and that also alerted her, this is not right. So she texts a screenshot of this to me as some of the rest of you did. 
uh, to let me know that someone was doing this and that they were pretending to be me, but they weren't me. And so in an effort to get the word out about this case of mistaken identity uh, that had happened, I had a, decided to have a little fun with it, and I went on Facebook, and I posted this post, which I think is our next slide. If you want to go ahead and advance it. No? Not there? There it is. If you got a message from me, this is on January 28th, if you got a message from me claiming that I needed you to help me out or do me a favor, it's not me, it's a scam, sorry for the confusion. But if you were about to send me money and still feel compelled to do that, you can find me on Venmo or on Cash App. <clears throat> and I'm still waiting for a few of you to send me that money. So in all seriousness, I actually had a friend from college that saw this post and sent me $5 uh, through Venmo as a joke. So <clears throat> just trying to make people, you know, make options available for people uh, if they wanted to help me out. So cases of mistaken identity uh, or, you know, where someone attempts to steal someone's identity happen all the time in the world that we live in, right? Where people can operate behind computers, screens, and on computers, but it isn't always about stolen identity. Sometimes we forget about our identity. We forget who we are. And in this series that we're in right now, going through the book of 1 Peter, Peter says over and over and over again in this letter, he challenges these Christians and he challenges us with this same exact thing, the same exact idea, to remember their identity, to remember who you are because of Jesus. And I want to jump in this morning and look at what he says. Again, I'm going to be in 1 Peter chapter 2, uh, it'll also be up here on the screens. We're going to be starting in verse 4, and we're going to kind of just walk through some of what Peter says in this section of this letter. He says in verse 4, As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by humans, but chosen by God and precious to him. I want to stop here for just a moment and talk about what exactly he's saying. Everything that he will say in the verses that will follow relate to and are kind of dealing with this topic of identity. And his first words that he writes in this section are, as you come to him. Now, it's important that we think about who he's writing to and, and why he says what he says, because all of the people that he's writing to are already following Jesus. And he says, as you come. Right? A lot of people make the mistake of thinking that you only come to Jesus one time. Maybe you've been guilty of thinking, I came to Jesus at some point in my life. I entered into a relationship with Jesus at some point in my life. But, you know, and that happens when we first believe. But Peter says to these Christians who already believe, as you come to Jesus, which suggests that we don't ever stop coming to Jesus. We're always on a journey, growing being challenged, being shaped, being molded, transformed to be more and more and more like Christ. And it happens as we keep coming back. That's how we grow. That's how we're shaped and transformed is that we keep returning to Christ. We keep going back, realizing that he is the source for the things that our hearts actually need. This is part of how we grow up in our salvation, which we talked about last week. But what he says gets better here in verse 4. He says, as you come to Jesus, the living stone. And there's a lot of languages you're going to see in the verses that we're going to read this morning that are kind of, they're, they're ancient. They're, they're older language that are a little bit outdated for our time in terms of how we think and operate. And so I'm going to try to spend some time explaining what it is that he's saying. He says, as you come to Jesus, the living stone. He refers to Jesus as 
the living stone, which was rejected by humans, but chosen by God and precious to God. So this idea of Jesus being a living stone is a reference to his resurrection. Jesus is the living stone because he is alive. He's been rejected before. He knows what it's like. And the human rejection that he experienced led to his death. But he isn't dead. He's living. Even though Jesus is not physically here with you and I, he is living. He is alive because of his spirit. And this is really important, but it's something I think that we often take for granted. We fail to appreciate in the fullest sense that we need to. And it's important that he's living because as a living stone, Jesus serves as an example for you and for me. Whatever we're going through, whatever we might go through, whatever we have been through, we can look to Christ because he gets it. He understands. He's been through it and He's a living stone. He came out alive on the other side, and so will you. And I know that you will because of what he says next. Look at what he says in verse 5. You also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. You come to the living stone, and you also, like a living stone, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood. In many ways, again, the images that Peter uses in this passage are kind of hard to relate to. Stones, priesthood, spiritual houses. So what exactly is he saying? First of all, as I already said, Jesus is the living stone. And he says that you are a living stone. You are like Christ. You are a little Christ. You're a lowercase l living stone, a lowercase s living stone. And he is the capital L and S living stone. But in the same way, even though we're not Jesus, we are like Jesus in the same way that Jesus was raised to life after his death. When we enter into a relationship with Jesus and we participate in baptism, we are being raised to life as well. And he says, you're being built into a spiritual house. Some translations, maybe the translation you're reading in Scripture says temple. We're being built into a temple of the Spirit, your, your Bible might say. Peter changes images and he kind of jumps around with his metaphors, which is okay because we kind of tend to do that anyway. One of the songs we sang a minute ago had a lot of different metaphors in trying to describe this, this thing that God has done for us and in us, right? Peter changes images from talking about living stones to talking about temples and then saying that we're a holy priesthood. He'll talk about priests some more in a minute in verse 9. But again, it's not something necessarily that we think a lot about. So I want to think for a second about priests and about temples. What do priests, first of all, do? Aaron, Moses' brother, that was the first priest. I want you to think about what priests did, whatever you may know about them or not know about them. And in, in case you don't know anything about priests, priests stood in between God and the people. Between God and the world, you might say. They represented God to the people. They shared what God was like because they were the ones, priests were the ones, that were most intimately connected to God in Jewish culture, in, the, in Judaism. But they also represented the people to God, right? So they represent, represented God to the people, going and spending time with God and then speaking a word on behalf of God to the people. But they also represented the people to God. They would cry out to God on behalf of the people. They would offer prayers for the people. And Peter is saying, 
you are priests. And again, this, this doesn't connect as well with us because it's not a normal part of our experience with God or even a normal part of the way we talk or think. But for a first century Jew, I cannot emphasize enough how mind-blowing this idea would have been, how powerful an idea it would have been for them. Peter's original audience is mostly Jews, and priests were a very familiar part of their lives. And they grew up knowing that the temple was a really big deal. The temple was, first of all, made of stone, but most of all, the temple was where God lived. And the temple was what the people associated with God. When people thought about God, they thought about the temple. That's where God's presence was. You went to the temple to meet with God. You went to the temple to be with other followers of God. And of course, the temple was in Jerusalem. The Bible sometimes refers to Jerusalem as Zion, which is going to be a word you're going to see in just a minute that we're going to read. And which made, because the temple was in Jerusalem, it made the city of Jerusalem a big deal, right? Jerusalem is where Jews would go to celebrate important feasts. Also, Jesus is raised from the dead and ascends back to heaven with God. What city are they in? Think about what you know about the Bible in Acts chapter 2, when the Holy Spirit comes to live in them. They're in Jerusalem. So Jerusalem is not only the place where God lives, it's the place where God works. God has done amazing things in this city. And is the, this is where the temple is located. So the temple is, is a central part of their existence. But where are these people that Peter is writing to? Again, primarily Jewish audience, very familiar with priest language, very familiar with the temple and what the temple would have meant and the significance it would have had for their lives. But where are these people? Do you remember back to the first verse of this letter that we read when we started this series? In 1 Peter 1, chapter 1, chapter 1 verse 1, he says, To God's elect exiles scattered throughout the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Right? Jerusalem is important to them, but these people aren't in Jerusalem. They're scattered all over the place. And like to think about a comparable example, there's not really a great example, but if you think about the Dallas-Fort Worth area as Jerusalem, right? It might, it, it, when this letter was written, instead of Pontus and Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, places like this, it might be like saying, for them, if they thought Jerusalem, Dallas-Fort Worth was the place where God worked and where God lived, it would be like them living in El Paso or Denver or Nashville, hundreds and hundreds of miles away. They're scattered all over the place. And they're, they're longing for thinking about this place that they used to know, this place where they used to live, that they know God lives and God works. And you can imagine if you think about them, right, scattered, exiled, many of them maybe not in the, in the places where they are, not by their own choice. You can imagine them saying to themselves, if we could just get back to Jerusalem. If we could just get back to Jerusalem, then everything would be better. We wouldn't be going through this persecution. We wouldn't endure this suffering, these hardships that we're facing. If we could just get back to the way things used to be. You ever heard that statement before? Back when we used to do this thing, God really worked back then. If we could just get back to the way it used to be. And Peter says, you don't have to get back. You don't have to go back because 
It used to be all about location. Jerusalem used to be where all the action was. It used to be the place where God worked and where God lived. But God is building a new temple, he says, a living temple. The living stone is making other living stones, and he's building those little living stones up into a spiritual house, a temple where the Spirit of God resides, and that temple is you. And just like that temple that housed the Spirit of God in Jerusalem, now you are the house where the Spirit of God resides. I want you to think about this and think about why this would be such good news to them and why it's still really good news for us. It's good news because it meant this. People don't have to go to Jerusalem to be near God. They don't have to go to Jerusalem to meet God. Because you are the temple being built by God. At the temple in Jerusalem, there were these different courtyards. And in the Old Testament, if you look at this, there was a courtyard where the Gentiles could go, but they couldn't go past that courtyard. And then there was a courtyard where women could go, but they couldn't go past that courtyard. And then there was a courtyard where men that weren't priests, that were Israelites, could go, but they couldn't go past that. And then you, you go on to, to the most holy place, the holy of holies, but only the high priest, only once a year, got to go into that place, the innermost part of the temple. And that was where, the holy of holies was where God's presence was. It was viewed as the most holy place in all of Judaism. And what's more important is that the Jews believed that the Holy of Holies, the innermost part of the temple, was the place where heaven and earth met. And Peter is saying, think about this, you are the new Holy of Holies. I just want you to sit with that for a minute You are the new holy of holies. You are the place that houses the Holy Spirit. You are the place that houses Jesus. You are the place that houses God to the world. You are the place where heaven and earth come together. So that wherever you are, God's presence is there too. Amen? What happened when you came into a relationship with Jesus is that God began the process of building you up, building your, your life into a temple where the Spirit of God lives. This is what God has done through Christ in us, is made people spiritual houses that are capable of holding, containing the presence of God. And it, is, it isn't just that you are being built into a temple. That, that is mind-blowing and really good news to me. But there is also this language of priest. He says you're a holy priesthood. So what he's also saying is now in, in previous times, there was a certain group of people who were priests. And only those people could be priests. Only those people could represent God to the people and the people to God. But now he's saying there isn't just a certain group of people that are priests. Now all of you are priests, men and women and teens and children, young and old. All of you have the responsibility to carry God to the people. And we need to give more thought, quite honestly, to what it means that all of us are priests, that we all have a voice, that we all have a role 
to play. Because to me, this is really good news, right? That if you think about the implication, there's so many things that we do in our faith that, that we already know this, like in our minds. But back, back in previous times, right, they, the idea that like kids could talk to God never would have happened, right? But today, there were children praying just during our prayer time a minute ago. There will be children praying in our classes here in a little while, right? Or probably right now in children's worship, it's happening. And just that idea that we teach our children that they have access to God Almighty is that, 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 is, that idea and that practice comes from the, the reality that you already know that you're a priesthood of believers, right? That, that we have, even if you don't feel like, well, I can't talk to God, I don't know what to say, whatever, you have access regardless. Regardless of how you feel about it, you have access. And that also means that you have responsibility to carry God to the people. And again, some of you might say, I don't really want that responsibility. And I have some news for you. Unfortunately, you don't have a choice, right? It's part of a package deal. If you've surrendered your life to Jesus, that comes with it. It comes with the relationship. This is your identity, Peter says. You are a living stone. You are a temple of the Spirit of God. You are a priesthood together. Let's look at what he says next in verse 6. He says, for in Scripture it says, he's going to quote several Old Testament passages here. He says, see, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone. He's talking about Christ. And the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Now to you who believe, this stone is precious. But to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And a stone that causes people to stumble, and a rock that makes them fall. Now, what is Peter saying here? Again, he's quoting some Old Testament passages. But he's saying this, as things from, again, this was written a long time ago, he's saying from that point, as things move forward into the future, our time, which we can now see, people will encounter Jesus. Right? We see that that's happened. There's a room full of us who have encountered Jesus. And they'll learn about Jesus, they'll hear, hear stories about Jesus, they'll hear testimonies from other, other temples, other living stones who have, been, who have encountered the presence of God and who want to talk about that. And as, the, as we move forward from this point in history, beyond our lives, this will continue to happen, right? People will encounter Christ. They will see the impact of his life and his death and his resurrection on real people. Right? Our lives have been impacted because of this, these events of Christ's life and death and resurrection. And it's changed our lives as a result. And through all of those experiences, people will encounter Jesus. Even though he won't physically be here, he will be here in spirit. And people will see, because you're carrying God's presence into the world, people will see God and they will see the impact that God has had on your life. And that encounter that people will inevitably have, we'll ha we'll, we'll, one of two things will, will play out as a result. Right? When you encountered God at some point in your past, you had two options. There were two paths that, had, that laid out before you. It will either become a cornerstone for a person or it will become a stumbling block for a person. And this, I, don't, I, I have come to believe in my faith journey that this is not always a one-time thing. There have been, I believe in, in Jesus, 
and I have put my hope in him. He is the anchor in the storm that we sang about a minute ago. Through whatever storm that may come, whatever windy gale may come, that's not language we really use, but we sang about it a minute ago, right? The anchor will hold, and I believe that with all my heart. But there have also been some things on my journey and yours on you, for you on your journey that you come up against that. You read something in Scripture, you experience something in your life, and that becomes hard all of a sudden. And so you wrestle, you question, you step back, and you evaluate This is different from my experience with God. What am I going to do with this, right? But every time that someone encounters Jesus, there will be one of two results. Christ will ultimately become a cornerstone for them, or it will become a stumbling block. And there are two, these are two images, right? A cornerstone is the foundation of a building project. I don't have any knowledge of building stuff or construction, so I'm borrowing all of these ideas making myself sound like I know what I'm talking about, but really smart people tell me that cornerstones are the place that everything in a building project, project is aligned by. So when a person claims Jesus is Lord, they are accepting him as their cornerstone. They are saying, I'm going to align my life by Christ. They are saying, I want to build my life with Christ as the foundation stone. They're saying, I can commit myself to him and believe in him, knowing that even if, even though, not if, life will happen, he will not let me down. But Jesus can also become a stone that causes stumbling. And again, maybe today you're not dealing with anything that is hard for you that you're stumbling over in your faith. But the reality is, the things that we believe take faith to believe them that Jesus is the Son of God, that he rose from the dead. Right? These are big ideas that take faith for a person to believe. And Jesus doesn't allow us to stay where we are. When we enter into a relationship with Christ, we don't stay the way we are. Jesus is always calling us to deeper places, places to live our lives not for ourselves but to, for others. Jesus asks us to love our enemies, to forgive generously, Right, so there's application for us because the things that Jesus asks people to do can be hard, are hard, quite honestly. I mean, who loves loving an enemy? Nobody. Who, who wants to generously forgive when you've been hurt? That's hard. Who wants to submit your life and, and do what God wants? Sometimes you want that, but it's also a hard thing to do, right? And because of this high calling... We've all experienced this. People encounter Christ. They experience the high calling that Christ invites us into, and they reject it. And they say, I, I can't do that. I won't do that. So there is an application for us in thinking about this idea of cornerstone, this idea of stumbling block. But also Peter is specifically talking to the Pharisees and teachers of the law, and, re, and re, not, to, talking, not talking to them, but he's referencing them, right? They rejected Jesus. Why? Why did they reject Jesus? Because he wasn't the Messiah that they expected. He taught and he lived in a way that wasn't what they wanted. He didn't do what they wanted. He didn't really do anything that they wanted him to do. In their minds, think about what you know about the way that ultimately, I mean, they kill him. They conspire with the Roman army and, and, and government, and they kill Jesus because they see him as a threat to what they want to do. 
Jesus wants to do one thing, and they want to do a different thing. They could not get their mind around what he was trying to do because he was not the Messiah that they expected. And so in their minds, because he wasn't the Messiah that they expected, they could not, he could not possibly be the cornerstone by which they built their life because he couldn't get them to where they wanted to go. They couldn't see that God was doing something that they didn't expect. They had in their mind, this is how God works, this is how God has always worked, and this is what God is going to do. And when God surprised them and sent Jesus into the world, they didn't have eyes to see it. And so they stumbled over Christ. He became a stumbling block for them. And instead of drawing them closer to God, they missed it, and they rejected him, and they killed him. And what's even more interesting than that to me is that Peter is the one writing these words. Right? Do you remember what happened in Mark chapter 8? In Mark chapter 8, Jesus asks his disciples, Who do you say that I am? And Peter, who was much younger at the time when he spoke those words in Mark 8 than he is now when he's writing these words in 1 Peter chapter 2, He was a much younger man. He speaks up like he always did when he was following Jesus. And he says, you're the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus says, you're right, I am. And then right after after that, go look at it. We're going to look at it together, but go look at this some more on your own in Mark chapter 8. Right after Peter says, you are the Christ, and Jesus says, you are right that I am, look at what happens next. Jesus began to teach them that the Son of God must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke about this plainly to them, and Peter took Jesus aside, the audacity, and began to rebuke Jesus. Why did he do that really quickly? Because he didn't think that Jesus' way was the right way. That's the only reason you would rebuke Jesus. Jesus is saying, i got to die, and the chief, I'm going to be rejected. And Peter says, there ain't no way that's happening. Because the Messiah that you are, in my mind, is going to do a very different thing than die. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. And he said, get behind me, Satan. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Why does Jesus do this to Peter? It wasn't just that the Pharisees couldn't see what Jesus was doing, though they couldn't. At first, some of Jesus' friends couldn't see what Jesus was doing. Peter cannot imagine that the way that Jesus is going to build this new nation, this new kingdom of people, will involve him dying because A dead Messiah isn't really a Messiah in his mind. And Peter has a different picture of what a Savior looks like. And Jesus calls him on it. And he says, Peter, you're thinking like a human being and not like a spiritual person. God is doing something different. Jesus continues and says this right after these words. He says, then, after he's rebuked Peter... He calls the crowd to him, and along with these disciples, he says, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me 
and for the gospel will save it. Jesus raises the stakes. Now, I, some of you have read that scripture before. And I want to suggest this morning that this is not a metaphor. That is an invitation to death. Do you realize that most of Jesus' earliest followers all died for proclaiming what they believe? This wasn't a metaphor, friends. Jesus was saying, if you want to follow me, this is what it's going to take. The stakes couldn't be higher. And Peter is struggling with this because this is not the picture that he has for a Messiah. He's a, this is a stumbling block issue for him. And that's part of what I was saying a minute ago is that you have faith, but sometimes in life, because of your experiences with Christ, you come up on some moments where, man, this is a stumbling block issue for me. I've got to think through this, wrestle with this, go back to Scripture, spend some time with the Lord, with the community of faith in wrestling with this idea because I need to get clarity about exactly how this fits into my faith journey. And that's what Peter is doing, I think. We know that Peter gets through it because here he is writing that you're a living stone, that you're a royal priesthood. And we know that Peter gives his life for the cause of Christ. So he clearly understands it by the end. But at this point in Mark 8, he's struggling to wrap his mind around it. My friend and mentor, Randy Harris, commenting on this story in Mark 8 some years ago, said this, and I have his, this quote on the screen. He said, Peter rebukes Jesus because he believes that there is one and only one thing that works in this world, and that thing is power. And the Romans will never give up their power unless we force them to, Jesus. And you, talk, you can talk about the love of God all you want to, but what they really understand is when you cut off their ear. It's the only way, which Peter did, if you remember. And Randy says that is the gospel according to Peter. And to this false gospel, you know what Jesus says? Get behind me, Satan. The gospel according to Peter involves taking power into your own hands and killing enemies along the way. And the gospel according to Jesus involves loving your enemies and dying for them. Those are very different things. Following Jesus will require giving your life away for Christ and for the world. Being a living stone in the world, a temple that houses the Spirit of God, that people can access God because they've experienced you. It will require that we believe that it is better to die for an enemy than to kill them. Can you see as you think about this why the thought of Jesus dying on the cross and followers of Jesus losing their lives, like why that would have initially been hard for Peter, a stumbling block for Peter, that he had to work through on his faith journey? Absolutely. And this is so important for us, church. The question that I want us to think about is, do we believe that Jesus' way is better, right? Because it certainly isn't what we expect either. We want to be the greatest often, and Jesus calls us to be the least. We want to be recognized, and Jesus calls us to be humble. We want success, and Jesus defines success much differently than we do most of the time. We want life, and Jesus calls us to die. And again, in Mark chapter 8, Peter was a young man, and by the time he's written these words that we're looking at this morning, he's much older. He's lived life at this point. He's worked through that issue 
And he is now willing to lose his life if that is what is necessary for the kingdom of God to continue to move forward. When we live according to the gospel of Peter, it's because we have forgotten who we are. We have forgotten our identity. But when we live according to the gospel of Jesus, into our true identity, Peter says, this is who we are. Read, look at these words, how he closes. He says, but you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Would you stand with me this morning? I want to close this morning by, if you'll just go back to that, those two slides. I want to say these words together. And I want to say them, I wanted to read them, and now I want to say them together to reinforce that this is who we are. This is our true identity. And too often we live by some other mistaken identity, forgetting that we are living stones. We are a priesthood. We are temples that house the presence of God. And I want us to be reminded, and I want this to become part of our long-term memory so that we always know and we live with confidence, believing that this is who we are. Let's say these words together. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Citizens of the kingdom of God, people of God, all of us together have received God's mercy in Christ. In Christ, we have been forgiven, we have been redeemed, and we have been made into a community that is united in faith. Once you were not a people, but now you are. You're a new nation. May we declare as we leave this week the praises of him who called us into light. Let's pray together. Father, we are humbled that you would take human vessels like us and allow us to carry the presence of God into the world. May we this week take that calling that we have received with seriousness and with responsibility, with humility, as we engage our coworkers and our friends and our family and our neighbors, as we engage our families, may we remember that you have called us out of darkness and into light. We thank you, Father, that though we were once not a people, now we are. That though we had once not received mercy, now we have. And we pray that as we live into those identity markers this week, that you will help us as we declare the praises of you who have called us to those things. We pray through the all-powerful and loving name of Jesus Christ. And the church said about this good news, amen. You are dismissed this morning. We invite you to stay for classes which are happening right after our time together now.